asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today we're discussing becoming a digital nomad and salary transparency with Kristen Wong. Yeah, Joel. Kristen Wong is passionate about helping people understand money in an accessible way. She started Lifehacker's personal finance blog called Two Cents. She's been featured in other major publications like Refinery29 and Glamour Magazine, and you can currently find her writing in Smarter Living and the New York Times. She also authored the book Get Money last year, which is a great beginner's guide to personal finance. So Kristen, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Kristen, we're glad to have you. And by the way, every episode, Matt and I, we crack open a craft beer. And the beer we're having tonight on the show is Monday Night Brewing's Lundy IPA. And Kristen, we intentionally drink a craft beer every episode. It reminds us of the fact that while we're saving for the future, we also want to enjoy life in the here and now. And craft beer for Matt and I, that's one of the ways that we're able to do that and make that a priority. So what is your splurge? What's your craft beer equivalent? Um, my beer equivalent, I mean, I could say the easy, fun thing that everybody loves, which is travel, which is definitely one of them. But I have to say, like, one of my more guilty pleasures that I don't like to readily admit is clothing. I spend, especially since my book launch, I spend quite a bit on clothing because I hired a, a personal stylist, which sounds like something I would never do. But it was actually <laughs> like one of the best uses of my you know money in a long time. 
I'm kind of just going off on this question. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I did it uh, when the book launched because I was like, you know, I was doing a lot of media stuff. And if you know any, if you knew me, you would know like, yeah, she probably needs a personal stylist <laughs> or any kind of public public gatherings. Um, and it was awesome because it, it just like, I, it made me confident and I didn't have to like worry about how I looked or how I was presenting when I was talking to people or giving speeches. So it's not a splurge I regret. I think it was a good call. Very cool, Kristen. Yeah. I love how that one thing was able to in- inspire so much confidence in you and, and basically take one thing off your plate as you're going on your book tour. By the way, I wanted to mention one of my favorite tweets of yours. You mentioned that you asked your husband three things he was thankful for. And one of the top things on his list was his Costco membership. (laughs) Automatically, I love him. I love him. I think we could be best friends. We're going to Costco tonight. He's very excited about it. What? Oh my gosh. Can we come too? (laughs) Come along. Oh man. Well, Well, Kristen, do you love Costco yourself or is it just your husband? No. I hate Costco. Oh, man. (laughs) Have you been to a Costco? This interview's over. (laughs) Well, I have. That's why it's not my favorite place to go either. I mean, here in Atlanta, uh, our Costco is pretty far from where we live. And so for me, that distance, you know, how far it is away from our house, that's a big reason why I don't personally like going to Costco myself. It's not the distance. It's the it's like IKEA on crack. It sounds like a great company, but like actually going to a Costco is a bit of a nightmare. And my husband last night was like, "Oh my god, we should go to Costco tomorrow." I'm like, "Why don't you just go and I can stay here?" And he's like, "Oh, well the the membership is in your name, so you have to go." Oh, they're not looking at the membership card that closely. I, I'm sure they'd let him in. He's just wanting to spend that quality time with you. It's maybe that's his love language, right? Quality time. Oh, that's that's true. Now I feel bad. All right. Tell your husband we want to interview him next time (laughs) as a Costco lover. Oh, he would love it to talk about Costco. (laughs) All right. Well, on another Kristen Wong family note, it seems like you've had an interesting relationship with money, even starting, you know, back at your childhood. In your book, Get Money, you mentioned your dad saying that money isn't the root of all evil, not having enough is. And so was money discussed a lot in your family? And why did this particular saying of your dad's stick with you? Um, Yeah, money was discussed a lot in my family. And he would be so happy. I mean, he's happy that that made it into the book, I think, because he's like, she listened to me. (laughs) And that just kind of really stuck with me because, you know, I think we grow up hearing from a lot of different places that money is bad. So it was interesting to hear this perspective on how it's not exactly bad. I mean, money at its core is just a tool, right? Like it's not good or bad. But it was interesting because his take on it sort of came from another extreme, right? Like not having enough is kind of the root of all evil. And I don't know if I would agree with that fully. Like it's the way that I look at money is that it's neutral and you can use it for good things and you can use it for bad things and you can use it for neutral things like hiring a stylist or paying your bills or saving some for tomorrow. Like we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but they had a huge interest in getting more money, (laughs) you know? So when I was a kid, I always used to joke that like, it was my, like I wanted to grow up and be rich just because we didn't have like it, money prevented us from doing so many things when I was a kid, you know, like I wanted to travel, we wanted to go on vacations and we could never do that. So I always said, you know, I want to grow up and have a lot of money so that I don't have to make, you know, choices and I can kind of do the things that I want in life. But it wasn't exactly that I wanted to grow up and be rich. It was just that I wanted to grow up and and have enough money, as I kind of said in the book, you know? Yeah, yeah. Have you 
changed your tune on that at all? Like, like as you've grown up and you've kind of had jobs of your own, made money, has that changed your tune on building wealth and your concept of having enough? You know, I think it's like a lifestyle inflation thing, right? Or the hedonic treadmill thing. You want more. Once you get more, you want more. So you want a bigger house. You want nicer things. So in some ways it has. But, you know, I was talking about this with my husband the other day. I remember when we met about 10 years ago, we were like, it was a splurge for us to go out to like Carl's Jr. (laughs) on a Friday night after work. And we would go to the park and just eat Carl's Jr. and be like, oh, we're so happy. We're so lucky to be able to do this. And now our Carl's Jr. has become like a much more expensive dinner on a Friday night. And then we were saying like, you know, it's funny though, because we're just as happy as we were. So I don't think in some ways, if we had to go back to that $12 Carl's Jr. meal, because we we got it for 12 because we were like using coupons and stuff. We were very good at that. (laughs) We would would still be happy. So I don't know. That's a complicated... It's a good question. It's a complicated question. I think, sure, like my milestones have gotten bigger and they probably always will be, but I'm just as happy as I was back then, you know, uh, in some ways money does buy you happiness, right? Like it buys you security. It can buy you things that make you happy too. But then there's like this overall happiness and fulfillment that like, I don't think has changed because of wealth or because of getting more money. Yeah. Kristen, uh, your approach and, and how you view money specifically as a tool and how it's not inherently evil and it's not inherently good. That's one of your arguments against minimalism, right? I've read your thoughts some about how Oftentimes, minimalism, uh, it obviously paints you know, possessions a lot of times as being evil. But with that, money also gets painted as evil. And how in reality that that's an unhelpful and potentially harmful way for us to view money. Can you share some more thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think minimalism is sort of misunderstood, right? Like, uh, I think there's like the trend of minimalism that we see. And that very much is like, oh, wanting more things is bad and wanting too much money is bad, or it it, it at least borders on that. Um, And so that's what I kind of talked about in that post. And you can take minimalism too far and it becomes a thing that you consume just like anything else. It's also a bit dangerous when, you know, I was talking about the argument with my mom who grew up with like, I say that we were broke or we didn't have a lot of money growing up. She like had no, like she was in a really bad situation um, as a kid with money. And so she says, you know, it's, I am a minimalist because I have no choice. (laughs) That's that's her, what she says about it. It's like, it's, you know, I live on less because I don't really have a choice. So sometimes I, I just worry a little bit when we start telling people like be happy with less, especially the state of our economy and our job market right now. It just seems like a weird thing to be talking about. But on the other hand, I do think like minimalism can be good, right? Like you can use it as a tool, just like money. You know, I would consider myself a minimalist. I am happy with less. I like having less things, not because I begrudge people who are maximalists or who like to buy their happiness in in material ways. I actually think there's nothing wrong with that. For me, it bogs me down and it's just like gives me so much that I have to think about and maintain. But yeah, you know, I think some of the arguments for minimalism can be sort of snobby and sort of discount the fact that money does buy us happiness, even not just when we spend it on experiences, but when we spend it on things too. And data backs that up. Yeah, Kristen, I think you're right. I think minimalism can be super hip right now in a lot of circles, but there are other people who are 
basically minimalist because of a lack of, of economic power. And so, yeah, there's definitely that dichotomy there where it is kind of hip for people of a certain socioeconomic status. Yeah, it's popular on Instagram, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But Kristen, I, I also wanted to ask you about of money avoidance. And you mentioned in your book that a lot of folks avoid money altogether. They ignore it. And that that ends up creating massive problems. So why do you think most of us avoid thinking about money? And what are the most and what are the common problems that result from putting our heads in the sand in regards to our money? I think most people are reluctant to talk about money or even think about money because they have bad experiences with money. I think people have bad experiences growing up a lot of times. Like if your parents fought about money constantly, you might grow up to just avoid it because money equals conflict to you. Again, all the messaging that we're given about how money is the root of all evil and money equals greed and money means you're selling out, all of those things, right? And we also have shame when it comes to money. So like most of us have made a somewhat egregious financial mistake in our lives, right? And so we are ashamed of that mistake and everyone else seems to know what they're doing with money except us. When in reality, I think most people don't really know what they're doing with money. You know, maybe not in our circles, like in the personal finance world, it's a bit different. But like, I think for the most part, most of us don't really have any clear direction when it comes to money, but we feel ashamed for that. And so that keeps us from talking about it, keeps money taboo. And what are the consequences of keeping your head in the sand about it? I think, well, it's really hard to learn about something when you don't talk about it, you know? So it's hard to figure out what you have control over when it comes to money, what moves you can make, how you can negotiate, how to, you know, how much you should be negotiating, how much you should be saving for retirement. You know, it's hard to do all of those things if you just like don't want to deal with money at all. Yeah, Kristen, if you see money as sort of the enemy or as a problem and you ignore it, that doesn't necessarily mean that it goes away, right? Like I think about if the check engine light like comes on on your car and you ignore it, well, the problem isn't going to go away. Now, nah, yeah, you don't want to put some duct tape over that and forget about <laughs> it, right? <laughs> yeah, like, and, and we can pretty much guarantee, yeah, like that it's going to get worse. You're going to end up with a bigger problem in the end. And Kristen, you've mentioned that if you can think about your money as a game, how that can be helpful. Why do you feel that gamification is good for our finances? And how do we start to think about money in that way? Well, so for anyone who's not familiar with the concept of gamification, it's sort of a business tool that companies use to like market to you. So like a store loyalty card is a good example of gamification. Like when you spend money at a store, you rack up points, right? And so you feel good, like you're playing a game and you're beating something and you want to do it more. And so I was reading a lot about gamification. It's been a bit of a trend lately. And it was really like the psychology behind it is so fascinating to me of just how you can kind of manipulate consumer behavior. And writing about money for several years, I noticed there were so many similarities in the psychology between gamification and personal finance. Like gamification, there are several components to it. Like you need to make the consumer feel motivated. They have to make meaningful choices. That's how they feel empowered. They have to feel like they're being challenged and making progress on those challenges. They need feedback to see if they're on the right track. They need a sense of autonomy and control. And all of that, like the more I was reading about it, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly how like you get good with money. And it, this is nothing new. Like Mint, if you use the budgeting tool Mint, they've already like snapped this, right? They have like a 
progress bar to uh, like for uh, your savings goals where they will show you like a green bar if you're on track with your savings goals and that makes you feel competent and you're getting that feedback. It makes you feel in control. And so I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to have a book that takes all of these components of gamification and psychology like into consideration when dealing with money. And so that's what I did with Get Money because the entire... Like, I really think people who are good with money, they just feel in control of their money. Like when I was in debt, I was in student loan debt. That wasn't a great situation. Like anybody looking on the outside would be like, oh, you're in debt. That's not a good money situation. But I felt in charge of my money. I felt in control. I got out of debt and I saved money. And really just that small feeling of being in control changed everything for me. It was just like that tiny feeling of being empowered, right? So that's what I aim to do with the book. Yeah, Kristen, I really thought that that was cool how you incorporated that into your book. Uh, you know, at the end of the chapters, like it said, level up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in the actual different chapters, you know, they weren't chapters, they were different levels. So you had level one, level two, level three. I was surprised at how it kind of pulled me into your book. It totally took me back to the 80s playing original NES. You know, I'm sitting there playing my Mario Brothers, but that was pretty effective in your book as well. So great job. Thanks. And some of it is like super obvious like that, you know, um, and just kind of fun and silly. But like, a, like I went through each chapter and really like broke down all of the components of gamification and how they related to money and how like to talk about it to readers in a way that makes them feel like they're in control. So it's a lot more subtle than that in some ways. But yeah, I don't know. It's fun. And Kristen, you just mentioned money challenges. And so on this quest for the gamification of our finances, what role can money challenges play? How can that spark us to becoming better with our finances? I think money challenges just give you that feeling of control, that feeling of autonomy that you have. You know, Ramit Sethi talks about quick wins, right? It's sort of the same thing. It just gives you that quick jolt, that quick instant gratification of being good with money. And we did this at Lifehacker Two Cents a few years ago. I proposed to my editors to do like a year of different money challenges. So each month we would do a new money challenge. And like the first month was no restaurant spending. And we got really good feedback on that. The best feedback was people were saying like, oh, I saved, you know, $118 this month and put it toward my credit card debt. And like that felt so gratifying to me because it was like instant results for people. And my hope is that you take a challenge like that and it just is the thing that gets you into getting your finances in order. You know what I mean? So if you were reluctant to get your money in order, you don't want to think about money. Money is... You think about it and you just get a headache immediately. Taking a challenge can kind of get you over that hurdle. Kristen, those are some great thoughts. And we've got more questions for you, including we want to discuss becoming a digital nomad. So hot right now. So hot right now. (laughs) Yeah, people moving to all different parts of the country or the world working remotely. And we'll tackle that right after the break. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. 
Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Spring cleaning is kind of a, an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember, because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs. And it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. All right, we are back from the break here with Kristen Wong. And Kristen, before we get to the digital nomad stuff, you wrote about the Diderot effect in your book. And it is such an interesting story. And it's so telling about how we tend to react towards the stuff around us, towards the things that we buy. What is the Diderot effect and how do we combat it? The Diderot effect is the thing that you do when you buy something and then 
have to buy all new stuff because the thing that you bought doesn't go with the new stuff. It's sort of named after this uh, French philosopher, Denis, I think his name is Denis Diderot, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's like an 18th century French philosopher who wrote this essay called Regrets on Parting with My Dressing Gown or something like that, where he talks about somebody, like a friend getting him like a fancy new dressing gown. We've all been there, right? (laughs) I mean, we we all have that friend who gets us the fancy new dressing gown. So he says, you know, it's a beautiful new dressing gown. Uh, The problem with it is it doesn't go with all of his other crap. Like it makes everything else he owns look and feel terrible because he's got this new identity, this fancy dressing gown wearer now. So then he has to buy all new stuff. And I think in the essay, he says something like, you know, beware the trappings of fancy new. And I'm very much uh, (laughs) just summarizing what he's saying, right? But like beware the trappings of fancy new things because they just lead to buying other stuff and changes your identity. So it's just this really interesting mindset thing that we do when we buy new things. And I do that. I do it all the time. Like if I buy a new rug or I buy a new couch or something for my house, suddenly that doesn't go with all the other stuff that I own. And then I feel like I need to buy other stuff that goes with that rug better. You know what I mean? I think a lot of us do this with a lot of different things, clothing, so many different things. And so one thing that's helped me with the Diderot effect is just really trying to, when I buy, like being more, and this is where minimalism comes in, right? Like being a little bit more intentional and a little bit more mindful with the things that I buy and thinking about the long-term consequences of whatever that is. Like, is this going to lead to buying more things? Is this what, you know, at what point is this going to end up in a landfill? I don't know. Things like that, that just kind of help you make more conscious spending decisions. Yeah, we've talked in the past about secondary costs and basically how everything that we buy ends up costing more than we think because we we just haven't factored in those other costs. Like let's say you buy a new car. Typically, you're thinking about that baseline payment that you have to pay every single month. You're not thinking about the potential increase in costs in insurance. And then the Diderot effect takes hook and you're like, man, I, I need nicer things to go along with my fancy new car. And you know what? I probably need to get it washed every week too. I think it's fascinating and and I think it's really fascinating that we have this story of Diderot and his dressing robe. (laughs) It's like the most unrelatable thing, but it's the most relatable concept. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so old school. Yeah, so very 1700s. (laughs) Very. But the total cost of ownership of a car is such a good metaphor, I think, for so many different things we buy. And there are like calculators you can use online to like look up what the total cost of ownership of a specific type of car you get is, like considering the gas mileage, considering the maintenance, that sort of thing. But I think it helps to think about that in terms of everything you buy, right? Like what's the total cost of ownership of it? Yeah, I completely agree. All right. So let's move on to becoming a digital nomad. And you mentioned that it's kind of an obnoxious phrase, But really, it's the best one we've got, I think. So we're seeing real trends in people moving and working remotely. We see folks moving from California to Idaho because it's so much cheaper to live there and they can keep their jobs and work remotely. We're seeing younger folks traveling the globe and and working from wherever they live. So do you have tips for people that dream of this digital nomad life? 
Yeah. And I should say, I've written about this a couple of times. I wrote about it on Lifehacker and I interviewed my friend, Stephanie Lee, who was a digital nomad for a while. And we both said like, this phrase is so obnoxious. Let's try to think of a new thing to call it. But like everything else was so much worse because we were like, what about like a work from anywhere worker or something like that? Or yeah, That sounds even more like, pretentious. No. <laughs> it's even more pretentious. But you know, I think the first thing is like, Everybody assumes that if you're going to become a digital nomad, that means you have to quit your job and do this grand thing. Or they think like you have to be on the road all of the time. And I think the truth is like people do it in different ways. There are varying degrees of it. And so Stephanie Lee, the uh, digital nomad that I interviewed, actually said like she got her boss on board with this. So she had a full-time job and she just negotiated her way into working remotely and got her boss on board. And so she didn't have to quit her job. And I mean, eventually she did quit her job, but it was just at first a matter of asking if she could work remote a few days a week and then amping that up a little bit. So I think that's the first thing. I wouldn't consider myself a digital nomad, but I also travel every month and have a home, you know, and have a home base. That's the thing that every digital nomad kind of needs some kind of home base, whether it's your parents' house or you can get a PO box and they can give you like a physical address where you get mail or something. But you know, I think that's kind of the first thing is like asking yourself it's and this is goes with so many things, but asking yourself why you want to do this in the first place, because if it's just like long term travel, well, you can do that without making these grand gestures like quitting your job or selling your house or leaving all your friends and family behind. Okay, Kristen, but for your friend that you mentioned, like she was still working while she was traveling. How did she set up a workflow? Because even when you are living that nomad life, you're, you know, out there in the world, you still have to get some of that work done. I think she said there were some structures that she had, like general structures, right? Like she was going to work in the morning or work out in the morning. And so she had like these blocks of time, uh, these scheduled in her calendar. But ultimately what she told me was, you can make all the plans you want. It's always going to change. So you just kind of like the beauty of being a digital nomad is just kind of being at the whim of your exploration or whatever, right? So it's good to kind of be flexible and and yes, make those structures and know that like, oh, I get my best writing done in the morning. Okay, that's great. Plan for that in the morning. But like you still want to see the city. You still want to see the place you're at. So I think just having some general structures in place, but then like also allowing yourself to be flexible to whatever happens. So did that ever hurt her when it came to collaboration, when it came to working with her coworkers, in particular, if people needed to get a hold of her during normal work hours? So how would you suggest someone wanting to become a digital nomad, someone wanting to travel and work remotely, be able to keep their boss happy and and also not irritate their coworkers at the same time? I think a couple of things. First of all, communication. Like You should be communicating with the people back home that you're working with when your working hours are and when you'll be available. And then obviously, you, if necessary, you want to be available when they're available. But the other thing is just making sure you have the right tools in place. So like you have Slack, you have uh, some kind of project management tool like Trello, which lets you communicate you know, with people on different projects. You have a solid Wi-Fi connection wherever you're at, like just making sure that those things are in place and you have like a, you've invested in a good workplace setup is going to make everything so much easier. So Kristen, obviously there's a lot of dependence, right? On technology when it comes to communicating with our coworkers, when it comes to collaborating, Joel, you know, you just mentioned collaborating with your coworkers. I'm thinking of a few industries, maybe some more creative industries or just industries that rely on working together as teams. 
Kristen, do you feel that there is something lost when it comes to communicating and collaborating specifically creatively with others when you're not able to meet face to face or in person? Right, of course. I think but that kind of goes for everything. Like everything is digital now. Every everything is remote now. Like I, I've there's so many of my editors that I've not even met face to face. But you know, I mean, of course, there's going to be something lost, or I, I think there's something gained when you meet with somebody and sit down, and you can see the nuance of their facial expression and kind of, you know, have the conversation in a different, um, more fulfilling way, I guess. But that kind of goes with everything, and I think there are ways to work around that. And I think one of the ways, one thing that I try to do as a remote worker, whether I'm quote unquote digital nomading or not is pick up the phone. So like if an editor says to me, you know, an editor will give me direction on an article I'm writing and then she'll be like, let me know if this is clear or if you want to jump on the phone, we can. And like my, I'm an introvert. My gut instinct is to be like, no, I never want to jump on the phone. Like I just want to be in my sweatpants at home. Leave me alone. But I take it. I, take the call because I know she, there's always going to be something more there. Right. And of course, like face to face is always the best, but like anytime you can jump on the phone or have as much human interaction as you can, the better. Um, I think that's another thing is like the human interaction. I mean, aside from just like the getting stuff done aspect of this conversation, it's like your mental health, like you need to see people and it's important to get out of the house whenever you can and go work somewhere new. It's I'm telling myself this more than anything because I have a bad habit of kind of hermiting up in my home after a while. So Kristen, you've written about kind of some of the other benefits of becoming a digital nomad. What other benefits are there for people who want to pursue that lifestyle of working abroad? I mean, there are so many things you can write off as a digital nomad, but I I don't want to tell anybody exactly what that is because the IRS has pretty clear... Well, they're actually not very clear, but they're clear about the things you can write off need to be like, what do they say? Ordinary and necessary. So in order to write off expenses, the IRS says those expenses need to be ordinary and necessary. And they define that as an expense that is common and accepted in your field of trade, business, or profession. And this is straight from their website. And a necessary expense is one that's helpful and appropriate for your business. But so that's super vague. And so that could be anything. So I really think, you know, you, you should hire a tax pro if you're going to do that because they can help you find those things that you can write off. I don't know if I would feel comfortable telling somebody, yeah, just write everything off, <laughs> right? Especially not publicly on a podcast. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and But what about health insurance as a digital nomad? Don't those folks sometimes have access to better health insurance plans if they're away from the United States for a good portion of the year? Yeah, well, I would say probably most people's health insurance is not going to cover them internationally, except in, a case, of, in, in case of an emergency. But you can buy what's called expat health insurance. And it usually lasts for like a few months or just six months. It's like five, $500 to $1,000 or something. And it will cover you while you are overseas doing your thing. I think there are also like international health plans you can get like as an extension to your current health insurance, but it's probably a little bit more expensive. So that expat health insurance is, is probably your best bet. I mean, the first thing you want to do is check your own, like your current explanation of benefits and your current health insurance and see if it's covered. But I don't think most people's are, except in, in case of an emergency. Kristen, that's some great advice about being a, uh, a jet-setting influencer. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to have some questions for you about being a woman in the workforce. Uh, and we're going to get to those right after the break. 
When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. That's why you listen to this podcast. And if you're looking to upgrade your wallet, you need to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. If you're paying for vacations with whatever card is in your wallet, you could be missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. You can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade, lounge access... Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simons on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney. For your extended 30-day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey 
We're back. We're talking with Kristen Wong. And Kristen, you write for this tiny publication called the New York Times. And you've recently written a couple articles about the difficulties that women encounter in the workforce. Can you kind of give us some insight and discuss some of the things you've covered? Yeah, it's complicated. Um, You know, a lot of the workplace structures that exist don't benefit women. And um, they sort of penalize women in some ways. And negotiating is a really good example of that. Like you've probably heard the statistic that like, or you've heard of the study that's like when women negotiate, speak up for themselves, they're viewed as unlikable. And when men do it, they're viewed as like assertive and like taking control and getting what they want. Oh yeah. He's a leader. Right. And so they call it a social penalty in the workplace. So I don't know. It's, 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 just more complicated for women in the workplace. There's a lot of gender bias. There was a study I read about recently that said people, like when they think about traits, when you'd say, oh, what is a, comp- a competent person? What kind of traits are, like masculine is a trait. Like the, So people think they associate masculinity with competence. So they're just all these subtle ways that the workplace is not favorable for women. So you see a lot more literature, I guess, coming out about how to navigate that. And that's one of the pieces that I wrote for The Times was sort of a woman's guide to negotiating in the workplace. Yeah. And oftentimes women, they get fewer pay raises than men do, right? There's a lot of studies out there uh, regarding that. So Kristen, how would you recommend that women fight these unfair practices? Yeah, I don't know. It's, um, it's hard. I, there are some practical ways that I've written about, like there's a researcher I talked to, Dr. Alice Stolmacher. I think she was the researcher behind the social penalty study. And she said like women need to be extra prepared with documentation when they go into an interview. So printouts of your boss, like an email of your boss, like praising you or telling you, you brought in 5,000 new customers on this project or whatever, like anything you can quantify with documentation, you bring that into the negotiation so that the focus is less on you as a person and your un, quote unquote unlikable traits and more on the the what, the results that you're bringing to the table right there's you know practical advice like that but i really i think the question it's it's i'm getting a little hesitant to answer that question more and more because i think like it's just such a it's a bigger issue so it's kind of hard to Tell like I find it difficult to tell women like oh here's how to navigate these like gender biases in the workplace against you, but at the same time it's like you kind of have to right like you kind of have to work around them and advocate for yourself and do all the things that you can to I guess rise up in this workplace. But I do think like a lot of it comes down to these workplaces doing a little introspecting and it's complicated because a lot of it is just our individual gender biases too. Okay. So I've got a question about salary transparency. You mentioned that maybe if our salaries were a bit more transparent, if we kind of knew what our coworkers made, that we might have a little bit more of an upper hand as employees. So do you think we should be talking with our coworkers about what we make? Is that an important step for us to take in in order to focus on earning more? Yeah. I mean, that's what researchers and experts say is one of the solutions to closing the pay gap is for women and I guess other marginalized groups who have a pay gap to talk about money more 
transparently. I think it's good advice for kind of everyone, right? There was um, a study that came out in 2013 that found that workers are actually more productive when salary is transparent. So I think it's good for everyone. But I also think it's important to know that like salary transparency or financial transparency doesn't always mean like sharing your exact numbers. It just means making information that could be beneficial to people in terms of salary, more tr- more transparent, more accessible. So there are ways you can share your salary with your colleagues and your peers. If you're not comfortable giving exact numbers, there are ways to do that in a roundabout way. Like you could say like, I really think you can command 75,000 for the position you're in. And that's a way to give somebody information without giving them your exact numbers if that's not something you're comfortable with. And a lot of people aren't. And I understand that, you know, I write about salary transparency a lot. I'm pretty transparent with my numbers, but I think some people are still like they either they still have that money taboo or for whatever reason, they're not comfortable sharing their exact numbers, but they still want to like do the right thing and like help people know what they could be earning and talk about money more openly. And I think there are ways to do that without sharing your exact numbers. So Kristen, for you specifically, as someone who's kind of like a writer for hire, you've written a lot of words at this point, you've written a lot of articles. How have you navigated that in in kind of that world where you know other writers around the internet? So are you asking people? Are you volunteering how much you're making? How are you essentially bringing salary transparency into your world? Yes. So all of those questions, I ask with people that I'm comfortable with, who I know will like trust me enough to share how much they're getting paid. I share with people I trust enough how much I'm getting paid at, at different places. I share openly how much I make. Um, like my standard rate is a dollar a word. I make anywhere between from the past five years, I've made anywhere between like 70 and 120,000 a year with writing and other things too, like speaking. So some of these conversations are happening openly. Like I think I've probably written about it on a blog or a newsletter before. And some of these conversations are happening behind closed doors on Slack, just with colleagues and friends who are like, hey, this publication is hitting me up. How much can I expect to get paid from them? And vice versa. If I am writing for a place that I know somebody has written for them before, I won't I mean, sometimes I will straight up ask them, like, how much are they paying you? (laughs) It depends on how comfortable I am with the person. But most of the time, I'll just say, like, hey, what kind of rate do you think I can ask for with this place? And, you know, there are online tools that can help with this. For writers specifically, I mean, everybody's heard of Glassdoor and Payscale, I think. For writers specifically, there is a site called whopayswriters.com where you can just plug in the name of the publication and it's self-reported rate information. So Christian, you're talking about this from a salary transparency point of view, right? You're having these conversations with your colleagues and everyone's on the same page. You're all working towards you know, getting paid more, making sure that there is equivalent pay. Uh, one of the main goals on How to Money here on the podcast is to drop that stigma about discussing money with our friends and family specifically. So aside from coworkers, what in your estimation can everyone do to make money less taboo? Uh, you should just ask all of your friends and family exactly how much money they make. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, yeah, just just alienate them all at once. <laughs> exactly. I think obviously talking about money more openly and having those conversations, yes, but doing it in a way that makes people feel comfortable, like trying to empathize and understand where somebody might be coming from. I think part of the reason money is so taboo is because we're afraid of being judged. I'm still afraid of being judged. Like when I told you about hiring a personal stylist, immediately in my head is like, oh, listeners are going to judge me for that. 
So this is something that affects everyone. So I think if you can, when you talk about money, like if your friend asks you, how much are you saving for retirement? Or you somehow broach that conversation organically, open the doors in like a non-judgmental way. Like, this is what your situation might be. Mine might be different from that. I think doing that with your spouse or your partner is super important. I think the main reason a lot of couples can't get on the same page when it comes to money a lot of times is because they feel attacked, you know? Especially when you talk to a your partner or spouse, it's important to talk about money in a way that doesn't make them feel like they're being attacked. Really, at the end of the day, like there's there's some personal finance advice that's like obvious, right? Like and applies to everyone. Like if you like spend less than you earn, you're going to build wealth. I mean, that's very basic, obvious advice that applies to everyone. Other than those, like personal finance basics, most of us handle money in really different ways. So like what works for me is not necessarily going to work for you. So I think just keeping an open mind, an open mind about money when you're talking about it with people is a great way to start breaking that taboo. Well, on the note of talking with your significant other about money, there's a stat I read recently, and it was that 43% of Americans don't know how much their spouse makes. If we don't even know how much our spouse is earning, that means we probably don't know overall how much our household income is. If we don't know that, then it's almost an impossibility that we know how much money we're spending. I feel like we're just setting ourselves up for money tension. Don't you agree? Yeah, totally. That stat is like so surprising to me. I read that too. And I was like, really? Like 43% is just crazy. Like just not like having no idea how much your spouse makes, much less spends, much less what bank accounts they have open. And I've gotten, I do a a column called Joint Accounts for Medium. And we get readers who will write in and it's surprising to me. And again, I'm trying not to be judgmental, right? Because I'm going to break the money taboo, but it's surprising like how much people don't talk about money with their spouse. And you have to, because like money issues will manifest in other ways. Like they're, they'll come up later, obviously knowing how much your spouse makes, but like knowing what their future financial goals are, what they're spending money on now, what kind of debt they have now, what their credit score looks like now, all of those things, what my friend Aaron Lowry calls getting financially naked with your partner or spouse are so important because they're going to prevent fights in the future. Yeah, Kristen, it's so important to communicate well uh, about money with our significant other, with our partner. It's also important to communicate well about our finances with our community. It's important to have community support in all aspects of our life, including our personal finances. So how do you recommend folks find their money tribe? Someplace that they can go where they can learn and talk more about their personal finances. I mean, I think the first step is talking about it with friends and loved ones being okay with having that conversation a little bit more openly, but also finding the like financial writer or financial author, expert guru, whoever that speaks to you. And whether it's me or somebody else, you know, um, just finding that voice that speaks to you most and makes you feel most empowered and in control of your money. Yeah, Kristen, I think that's great. What are your thoughts on finding a community online where people can help each other out when it comes to their personal finances? Like for instance, we've got a Facebook group with, with thousands of people that are helping each other out every day with their money questions. It's, it's a beautiful place to be. So are there other places that you think people should go where there are, are folks willing to give advice and help out? There's, there are no shortage of online, community, uh, online communities for people who are interested in getting their finances in order. I've heard another good one is the You Need a Budget Forums. 
people go in there and I'm not a part of that community, but I've just heard great things about it. There are different financial gurus like Ramit Sethi who have like these, um, who have meetups with their followers. I think that's really great. I've been to one of his events before and it was pretty incredible how many people were there and how, how good the energy was. So just finding some voice in the personal finance world that speaks to you and then finding where their community is, whether it's online, if they have meetups, there are so many out there. Kristen, that's awesome advice. And this has just been a fantastic conversation that we've had with you today. Uh, Where can folks find more info on you? I am on social media at The Wild Wong. You can find me at kristenwong.com. Sweet. And we'll pop those links up on our website at howtomoney.com. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a really fun conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kristen. All right, Joel. Man, that was a fantastic conversation with Kristen Wong. Joel, what was your big takeaway from our conversation with Kristen? Yeah, that was really enjoyable. Kristen's awesome. Her husband might be even cooler, but uh, (laughs) we'll not talk about that right now. I think the big takeaway for me was the idea of gamification of your money. I love how challenging yourself in that way, thinking about your money as a game to win, as opposed to this boring thing that's holding you back. It's really all about mindset. And if you can start to think about money in the way you think about beating the levels of a video game, it can really help you as you kind of seek to be the master of your money domain. And you know what? A money challenge might be just the thing to get you started. So yeah, that was my big takeaway, Matt. What was yours? Well, uh, that one actually may have also been <laughs> been mine. But I totally agree with you though, right? If we can find ways to make our personal finance, if we can find ways to make money more fun, then it's something that we're going to naturally want to improve upon. But I can't choose the same one as you. So I will go with the Diderot effect. I, you know, This is something we've talked about before, but now I have an actual name for it. We've talked about how you know, anytime something old touches something new, in comparison, you think, oh, well, that... You know, the example Kristen gave was, oh, that, that couch is old and shabby now next to that nice new rug. I think with that in mind, we need to consider our purchases and to make sure that the things we are buying sort of fit within our existing framework of, of how we want to live our life. Otherwise, it's going to be really easy for us to get carried away buying new stuff because, man, like that old stuff, that's shabby looking. <laughs> it's time for an upgrade. And I say that because it's easy for me to go down that path. So I'm, I'm saying this almost as a, a personal reminder for myself. Yeah, for sure. It takes intentionality to avoid the Diderot effect in our lives, right? I completely agree. All right, Matt. And the beer that we had on the episode tonight while we were talking with Kristen was the Lundy IPA by Monday Night Brewing. They're right down the street from us. And you provided this beer tonight, my friend. Thank you for the beer. And what was your take on it? Yeah, man. This was a recent release of one of our favorite local breweries here in Atlanta. Lundy. You know what? I actually I looked it up as well because I was like, well, what does Lundy even mean? D- did you look it up? Nope. I have no idea. It's French for Monday, Ooh, which obviously is quite appropriate for Monday Night Brewery. That makes sense now. Exactly. Man, for me, this was an IPA that was incredibly citrusy out the wazoo citrus. I, I love that. On the can, it says that it was soft and I totally am down with that as well. It sort of had this slow build to it. It's almost like a, like a nice fade in you know, like with audio, like you're all about audio, right? Had like that nice sort of fade in as you're drinking it. It didn't overwhelm your palate. Like right when you drank it, it kind of had a nice crescendo effect before it kind of hit you with all of its juicy, citrusy goodness. But yeah, man, I'm all about this one. Another solid offering from the guys over at Monday Night. What were your thoughts? 
Yeah, another word they put on the can to describe this beer was elegant. Reminded me of myself in that way. Uh, <laughs> it, it truly, I would say, a refined beer. It's this IPA that you can tell has these just beautiful subtleties going on. It, it doesn't overpower you. It's not just this overwhelming flavor punch to your mouth, but it's one of those that you could see having in your fridge almost all the time because it is something that has just a nice amount of flavor, but it's not crazy intense. So yeah, I really like this beer from Monday night and another great one. They, they just continue to make great yeah. beers. No wonder they continue to expand. I think they're building a brewery in Birmingham now. So they're getting big, man. Yeah. So if you're in Birmingham, keep your eyes peeled and you can look for that space opening soon. All right, Matt, that's going to be it for this episode. We will put show notes up for the episode on our website, howtomoney.com. We've got tons of other stuff there as well. So go check out our website. Yeah, and we would love for you to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And also, if you don't mind, head over to Apple Podcasts and you can leave us a little rating and review over there. So Joel, that's going to be it for this episode, man. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month no matter what kind of entertainment you love addicted to true crime catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on a e crime central crave adventure explore asian action movies on hayah searching for something extreme check out skating snowboarding and more on fuel tv plus the global home of action sports and find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's hit nation playlist there's new free shows and movies to love every week say free this week in your xfinity voice remote